And here we go, everybody. It is another edition of Jamal About Sports. Wednesday, March 15th on a very chilly evening here in downtown Brooklyn. Looks more like January 15th. Snow, ice on the ground, temperature in the 20s. That, of course, was We Want the Airwaves by the Ramones. And we kick it off with a big show. We've got the World Baseball Classic, a little free agent frenzy in the NFL, some March Madness, and a little bit of NBA. But we'll start out with the World Baseball Classic. And listen, it's a little weird because it's not getting a lot of publicity. I don't think it's been marketed very well by, uh, you know, I guess you can't really say Major League Baseball, but whatever, the World Baseball Association, whomever runs the World Baseball Classic, I don't know. Um, But you would think Major League Baseball would be more actively involved because a lot of its players are playing on these various teams. And so you're getting some incredibly well-played games. Exciting. For instance, the Dominican Republic versus Puerto Rico last night. Dominican Republic, going back to when they started this, which was in 09, they played for four years, so 09, 13, and now this year, 11 and 0, hadn't lost a game. Not surprising when you think of all the good players, great players, that have come out of the Dominican Republic and played in the major leagues. And this year's team is no different. In fact, this year's team might be the best lineup. When I say lineup, just the lineup, not pitching necessarily, but best lineup ever, ever assembled to play in competition in the history of baseball. I'm not kidding. Look at the lineup. On any given night, you have either Jose Reyes leading off and playing shortstop or Gene Segura. Now, Gene Segura, not a big name. He had 200 hits last year for the Diamondbacks, up-and-coming player. And then Jose Reyes, who... Is he what, he what he used to be 10 years ago? <coughs> Excuse me, or even five? No. He's still pretty damn good. Hitting second, you have Manny Machado, the stud third baseman from the Orioles. Already won two gold gloves. He's an MVP candidate. He's made plays so far already in this World Baseball Classic games I've watched where he goes to his backhand side, momentum carries him a good 10 feet into foul ground, and then off balance he throws darts to first base and gets guys out. Unbelievable. The guy is unbelievable. And he's 25. Seemingly will get better. Just scratching the surface. So he hits second on that team. And he's, you know, he's a 30 home run guy. I mean, he's tremendous. 300 hitter. Great player. Batting third, Robinson Cano. One of the best left-handed hitters in baseball. First couple of years with Seattle, not very good. Major fall off from what he did with the Yankees. Last year he bounced back, 39 home runs, hit 300. Tremendous player. And very good with the glove also. That's the other thing. All these guys are really good with the glove too on the infield. I mean, their infield is ridiculous. So, uh, Cano hits third, hitting fourth. Joey Batista, Joey Bats, Jose Batista. Now, he didn't have a great year last year, but an injury-shortened down year for him. He still hit 22 home runs and drove in 70 runs. The guy can still rake. So he hits fourth, hitting fifth, Carlos Santana, 
first baseman, slugging first baseman from the Indians. You know, he was, a, I think, a 30 and close to 100 guy last year, 400 on base percentage or something like that, close to it every year. I mean, a really good offensive player. Started his career as a catcher, not very good. Now he plays first base, and he's not great there either. He's more of a DH, but the guy can flat-out hit. Hitting, so he hits fifth, hitting sixth. Oh, Nelson Cruz. I think major league leader in home runs like for the last five years. Plays on the Mariners with Robinson Cano. Guy's a stud, hits 30 home runs every year. So he hits sixth on this team. <laughs> and then seventh, oh, Adrian Beltre. Another gold glover at third base. Sorry, so uh, I guess Machado plays third. Beltre also plays third. Sometimes Machado, I guess, will DH. Or Beltre will DH. But either way, they, they're in the, same, uh, in the lineup together sometimes. Beltre is a borderline Hall of Famer. He's got like 450 home runs for his career. Really good player. Hitting eighth is Gregory Polanco, who, not a huge name. You may be like, who's that if you're a casual baseball fan? I, he, I think he went 22-88 and 88 last year for the Pirates. Up-and-coming player. He's going to play center field for them this year, moving Andrew McCutcheon. MVP candidate in years past. Gold Glover in years past, moving him out of center field because they feel so strongly. Look, McCutcheon's play slipped a little bit in center field defensively. He didn't have a great offensive year last year either. But they also think Polanco has a, a ton of upside defensively. My point is he's hitting eighth, and he had 22 home runs and 88 RBIs in the major leagues last year. And hitting ninth is well in his see of the catcher, but whatever. And then, you know, I mean, you can't have, they can't all be all-stars, can they? And meanwhile, he hit a big home run in one of these games earlier that I was watching anyway, for good measure. And then you look at their bullpen, and it's Jairus Familia, Delon Batances, Fernando Rodney, Alex Colome. I mean, all those guys have closed at one point or another in their careers. Most of those guys, except for Batances, have all had 30 safe seasons. Then you throw in, oh, for good measure, um, Hansel Robles, who's, well, not an all-star in the major leagues, a very good setup man for the Mets. I mean, the team is stacked. And then you look at Team Puerto Rico, they've got Francisco Lindor, the stud shortstop from the uh, Indians. Javi uh, Javi Baez, stud second baseman for the Cubs. Um, Yadi Molina, Perennial All-Star for the Cardinals, a catcher. Carlos Beltran, borderline Hall of Famer as their DH. Angel Pagan, above-average Major League player playing left field for them. I mean, that's a good team also. And they played last night, and Puerto Rico upset them and won 3-1. to one. First inning, bases loaded, nobody out. Batista strikes out. Santana hits a fly ball right field. Uh, Edward Rosario is playing right field for Puerto Rico. He is uh, an outfielder, plays for the Twins. Not a star. He's known as a very good defensive outfielder. His offense hasn't caught up with his defensive prowess yet. He throws a seed to home plate to get Gene Segura out in an ending double play. For those of you old enough to remember Dave Parker, think Dave Parker. Think Dave Winfield, Dwight Evans. I mean, a gun 
an absolute gun. You thought, no way he's going to get this guy out. One hop, perfect strike from right field. Molina catches the ball. He makes the out call as he makes the tag. And he was right. And the guys on the Puerto Rican bench, they burst out of the dugout. High fives. I mean, this is legit emotion. Listen, I'm typically a act like you've been there before guy. But this stuff is real. This is national pride on the line. These guys love it. And by the way, the guys in the DR, they're doing the same thing when they do something good. And to me, if you have that dynamic, then it's not an issue. You know, these unwritten rules that Major League Baseball has about how one's supposed to comport oneself. And that's, you know... Listen, again, I'm an old school guy most of the time. It's a new era. You know, a lot of these unwritten rules, you know, you know, there's some unwritten rules too. There's no black guys allowed to play in baseball or Latin guys allowed to play in baseball either. Those are some unwritten rules. And by the way, Major League Baseball, if you're, if you're worried about losing the millennials, the precious millennial viewers, I don't like speeding up the game is the answer. The, the beauty of baseball is that there is no clock. To me, to anybody who actually likes baseball, and guess what? If somebody doesn't like that, they're not going to like it. And getting rid of throwing four pitches to reduce time now that would ordinarily be an intentional walk, that's not bringing fans into the stands. But super uh, high-level skill play and a lot of emotion might, that can excite some people and draw crowds. Listen, what the hell? Why, why would I even be watching this? Because I actually like baseball. I mean, but I have no dog in this race. But it's fun to watch. If you like baseball, you should be watching the World Baseball Classic. It's tremendous. I mean, you've got great storylines all over the place. Team Israel got to the second round. Nobody thought that was going to happen. You've got Japan is a very good team. Venezuela is a very good team. They have a very good lineup. Victor Martinez, Miguel Cabrera, among others. I mean, you've got all-star, at least probably one all-star, all-star caliber player on every team. Didi Gregorius and Jerkson Profar play for the Netherlands. How, you ask? Well, because they're from, you know, Dutch Antilles or one of those islands that the Netherlands controls. You know, like, what's his face? Andrew Jones, you know, from the Braves, the Braves fame. You know, he was from, uh, what, Curaçao, which is an island controlled by, you know, the Dutch. So there's there's good players on almost every team, guys you know on almost every team. The, the level of play is excellent. But again, particularly anytime the DR is playing, I'm watching. And tonight, Venezuela, United States, 9 o'clock, I will be watching. Now, I think maybe part of the reason it hasn't caught on as much is because the some of the real stud players, like Noah Syndergaard, for instance, declined to go to the World Baseball Classic. And as a Mets fan, I'm glad he didn't go. Mike Trout is not playing, right? Arguably the best player in all of Major League Baseball. He's not playing for Team USA. So maybe that, you know, it loses some of its luster to some. Not to me. I'm watching. I mean, there was a play last night in Puerto Rico... DR game where uh, Nelly Cruz late in the game, 3-1 game, tries to steal second base. Molina throws a seed, throws him out. 
Javi Baez, the second baseman for Puerto Rico, you know, plays for the Cubs. As he's catching the ball, he's before he even makes the tag, he's pointing at Molina like, yeah, yes, hell of a throw, my man, giving him the point before he even makes the tag. It was unbelievable. Slaps a tag down, Molina's up, fist pumping. And again, listen, if this was happening against my team, I guess I would get pretty aggravated and irritated. I could understand that. But you know what? If my team gave it right back to the other team, the Mets were playing, let's say the Mets were playing the Nationals this year. And Bryce Harper goes yard and does his, you know, Jeffrey Leonard flap down, takes him an hour, one flap down, takes him an hour and a half to get around the base paths. To see, give the Nationals a 2 nothing lead. All right, I'm going to be irritated. I'm going to be angry. But let's just say Cespedes comes up in the following inning and he parks one to tie the game up and he does the same thing. To me, all's fair. And I think that'd be highly entertaining. Again, I think we need to get over some of these unwritten rules. You know, again, if everyone's doing it, that changes the dynamic. Not everybody is so easily offended. I think it changes the dynamic. Now, I know my boy AG would disagree with me vehemently on this. Oh, when Joey Bats did that bat flip in the playoffs against the Rangers two years ago, he was not happy. Now, look, I get it. He doesn't like the Blue Jays anyway. He's a Yankees fan. He doesn't like Joey Bats. Joey Bats has terrorized his team for years because he rakes against the Yankees. I get it. I understand. I think it's time to rethink the outlook, the way we look at Major League Baseball and how it's played. Listen, these dopey post-game celebrations, these walk-off celebrations with the sunflower seeds and the Nationals a couple years ago with the chocolate syrup... And all this stuff that to me is completely forced and manufactured. That stuff drives me nuts. Listen, I'm firmly convinced that the reason Justin Turner, who's turned into a stud for the Dodgers, is not on the Mets is because the year he was on the Mets when the Mets were you know busy going 75 and 95 or whatever the hell it was. You know, the few times the Mets would win a game late. There he was, first guy with his his wacky red beard and long red hair and his pies in the face, his shaving cream pies in the face and guys when they're doing a post-game interview. And I'm pretty sure Sandy Alderson, who's as old school as they get, said, is this guy with his 260 batting average and his four home runs kidding me? Get out. Now, of course, he turned into a stud for the Dodgers. But I don't blame Sandy Alderson. There was nothing, by the way, that indicated that he was going to turn into that kind of player. He was a journeyman minor league guy anyway. There was nothing that led anybody to believe he turned into as good a player as he's become. Give him credit for doing it. You know, it's like the old Frank Cashin line. When the Mets won the World Series in 86, they had a, a middle innings reliever named Randy Neiman who, you know, was basically a mop-up duty guy. He'd either come in, if the Mets were blowing a team out, on the rare occasions that season the Mets got blown out, there'd be Randy Neiman. And, you know, he'd get some vulture wins here or there. You know, he'd come in and the team would score runs after the starter threw a good game or whatever, and then he'd get a win. But, I mean, he was not a huge contributor, put it that way. And then after the Mets won the World Series, there's Randy Neiman in the post-game celebratory locker room 
He's spraying champagne all over. I think he sprayed Frank Cashin. And Frank Cashin, when he's interviewed, his first comment was, isn't it, isn't it interesting that the guys who contribute the least celebrate the most? Or something. I'm paraphrasing. That wasn't the exact quote, but it was something like that. That's, that's what I think Sandy Alderson thought about Justin Turner and why he's no longer on the Mets. So, yeah, that kind of stuff bothers me. But if it's in the game and it's, it's legitimate, it's authentic, it's real emotion, I have no problem with it at all. And listen, I understand... You know, this is national pride on the line. You know, the dog days of August in a major league game, you know, guys aren't going to be playing with the same kind of heightened intensity probably. I understand unless it's a pennant race and it's your division foe. But, you know, listen, part of the problem, Major League Baseball, is you've completely ruined and taken any of the, of the cachet away from interleague play now that there's interleague play every night. So, you know, when the Royals are playing the Pirates on a Wednesday in the middle of August— you know, unless you're a diehard Pirates or a Royals fan, nobody gives a crap. I think they should go, they should do what they did initially when they rolled out interleague play in baseball, which is the divisions play each other and that's it. Either that or get rid of it altogether. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with some football right after this. And we are back on a Wednesday edition of Jamal About Sports. That, of course, was the early 90s jam, Move Any Mountain. Ten bucks to anybody out there that can guess the name of the band that sang that song. I know there are a couple of, a couple of listeners out there that I think probably would get it. But in any event... So we move away from the World Baseball Classic, which, again, if you're a baseball fan and you want to watch elite skills... Watch it. You want to see guys playing with raw motion? Watch it. Now we move over to the NFL and the free agent frenzy. The time of year where another man's trash or one team's trash is another team's treasure. And teams get carried away and overspend. It's just oftentimes like Major League Baseball as well. NBA, you see the same thing. You know, Oh, the winners of the offseason, they made the big splashes, and then almost always they never turn out. You have some exceptions. Last year, the Giants loaded up on defense, right? Olivier Vernon. Um, oh, I'm blanking now on the cornerback that they signed. Ay, ay, ay. Anyway, uh, and the, 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 those those moves worked out for the Giants. We'll just say uh, they bolstered. They, they needed to address the defense. They did, and it worked out. Those guys played well. Um, but then you also have the Albert Hainsworths. Um, you know, I'm not going to say Dominican Sue has hurt the Dolphins, but for what they're paying him, has he made that team markedly better? No. Have the Lions been markedly worse since he left? No. I mean, their defense isn't as good, but they've still made the playoffs one of the two years since he's been gone. Listen, I think free agency in the NFL is you patch 
specific holes with one, maybe two big names, which is kind of what the Giants did last year. The rest of it is for roster depth. You might get lucky here or there with a guy that, you know, at one time was a high draft pick, maybe it was a bust or a washout with his present team, and you get him on a one-year prove-it deal. And you're seeing that more and more, by the way. You're seeing that a lot now. Teams are taking young guys that, you know, they have they signed five-year contracts, they play four years, the team declines to pick up the fifth-year option, and so these guys are still, in a lot of instances, 25, 26 years old. And then instead of in years past, though, because their draft status and they were big name, you'd see teams overspending. Now the teams are giving them, you know, look look at what the Lions just did with D.J. Hayden, cornerback. He was a 12th pick in the draft at 13 from the Raiders. Right, guy's been injury-riddled his whole career. I mean, listen, that guy almost died. He had a, a, a collision in practice when he was in college at Houston, severed like an artery in his heart. It's, it, it's, it's an injury, first of all, that they say only car crash victims is, is when you generally see an injury like this. They've never seen it on the football field. And 95% of the time, guys die. And meanwhile, the guy overcame it, played, got drafted, and then, of course, has been nothing but injuries one after the other. Thankfully, not that, but, you know, it's a hamstring or a knee or a this or a that. Guy's been injury riddled his whole career so far. Played 11 games last year. They moved him from outside into the slot. Played well. Of course, then got pulled a hamstring. Missed the last five games of the year. Lions gave him a one-year $5 million deal, which is probably not even that much money. That's if he hits every playing incentive. And by the way, that means he's going to play a lot. It means he's going to be healthy. It means he's probably going to be playing well. So $5 million for a good cornerback in the NFL, that's a bargain. So it's a smart move. And clearly the guy's going to want to prove it. Listen, the Browns, uh, sorry, not the Browns, the Redskins just did it with Terrell Pryor, right? Last year was his first full year playing wide receiver, put up good numbers, despite the disaster dumpster fire that was the Browns last year. 70 catches, 1,000 yards. Now in years past, and and listen, the Redskins are a mess, but in this instant, I'll give him credit, years past, that's a four-year, $40 million deal. Now it's a one-year, $8 million deal. The Eagles did with Alshon Jeffrey. Years past, look, he was suspended four games for PED use. He was hurt. But he's had good years in the past. He's a young player. Years past, NFL team, some team out there, some dopey team, probably the Redskins or the Raiders, would give a guy like that, you know, some ridiculous contract. Eagles gave him a one-year prove-it deal for like, I don't know, it's $10 million. Not Not chump change, but smart move for both the player and the team. And I think you're going to see this more and more. Unless you think this guy's a core guy, teams more and more are going to give guys one-year contracts. And I think guys are going to take it. Because, again, you have a good year, then you can get the guaranteed money, which is a signing bonus, right? Because we know these contracts are never guaranteed in the NFL. So I thought that was I thought those were some shrewd moves right there by some, some of these teams. And then you have the, Jag- the Jaguars, who, you know, we talked about them a while back during the, the, the coaching vacancy time. Talked about, you know, I thought it was a sneaky good job because there's a lot of talent on that defense, a lot of recent high draft picks, and some not so high, like Telvin Smith, who I think was a fifth-round pick. He's a very good outside linebacker for them. But, you know, they paid Paul Puzlosny a ton of money. They gave Julius Thomas a ton of money. Uh, 
Chris Ivory, um, uh, Devon House. Uh, I mean, they, they've paid a lot of guys a lot of money, and none of these guys are on the team anymore. <laughs> They're all gone. So there were the Jaguars again, rolling out the Brinks truck, backing it up for the likes of Calais Campbell, who, very good player, still productive, eight sacks last year for the Cardinals, but he's 31. Four-year deal for like $50 million. They gave A.J. Bowie, who had a very good year, and he's a little different because he's 26. They gave him a huge contract. Barry Church. See, listen. Uh, they traded, I guess, for Brandon Albert. Not a bad pickup. They needed to help their offensive line. He's a good left tackle. So they've been very active. You know, the whole, and this is all. It's all nice. It's all good. Same issues. Who's your quarterback? Do you think it's Blake Bortles? Be very interested to see. I mean, look, there's not a ton out there. We've seen, you know, the likes of Mike Lennon get three years, $45 million contract from the Bears. And everybody went nuts. It's not that bad. First of all, it's really like a two-year contract. And it's, you know, $13, $14 million a year. That's a going rate for a starting quarterback in the NFL. For an average starting quarterback in the NFL. So, you know, people are going nuts. I don't think it's the big worst thing in the world. Bears can probably get out of that contract after a year. Doesn't preclude them from drafting a quarterback in this year's draft, even though it's not considered to be a particularly strong quarterback draft. And letting the guy develop and see. And if Mike Lennon turns out to be good, then they're getting a, a, a they're they're getting a bargain. Fourteen million dollars for a good above average starting quarterback. The NFL is cheap now. It's cheap. I mean, all the supposed elite guys all make 20. Breeze, Rogers, or Rogers makes 18. Oh, yeah, and he was annoyed. He's moaning and groaning on some talk show about how, you know, they asked him, if Mike Lennon's getting 14 million, you certainly need, you know, what do you think about yours? Is that something you have to revisit? He goes, oh, I, w- I would think so. Oh, yeah, I know, Aaron. I know you haven't made any money in your career. Please. But so my point is most of the elite guys make at least 18 million a year. The top tier guys, luck. Luck makes more than that because he's young. And that's the way it goes. And listen, Matt Stafford makes 20, and now he's going to make 24, 25, and the Lions redo, redo his contract. And you're going to have some lazy ass sports writer or some scrub hack like Skip Bayless or Stephen A. Smith say, This is ridiculous. This guy's never won any playoff games. How could it? That's what happens, dummies. That's the cycle in the NFL. The younger guys get the biggest contracts. And then guess what? In two years, someone like Jameis Winston or Dak Prescott will replace Matthew Stafford as the highest quarter paid quarterback in the NFL. That's the way it works. I mean, Stafford's still only 28. I think maybe he'll be 29 when the season starts. And if you have the cap room, what are you going to do? You're going to let him go? Of course not. Who are you getting? Be- who, who are you going to get if you're the Lions? It's better than Matthew Stafford. They won nine games last year basically because of him, with a lousy defense and no running game, and they won nine games and made the playoffs. 
I'm not saying he's the best quarterback in the league, but that's just the price of doing business. That's how it works. Speaking of the Lions, by the way, very encouraged by what they've done so far in free agency. They addressed their biggest, two of their biggest need, their biggest needs on offense, which is the offensive line. They had two free agents on right tackle and right guard. Both those guys left, got paid. The Lions replaced them with two players who were considered to be better. Rick Wagner, right tackle, TJ Lang at right guard, who, by the way, was on the Packers. So I love that move for two reasons. One makes the line stronger, two makes your main opponent weaker. Guy didn't allow a QB pressure, hit, or sack last year. Now, I understand that's maybe somewhat deceiving because Aaron Rodgers is mobile, but it's also somewhat impressive because Aaron Rodgers also hangs on to the ball for about an hour. Now, will, will my theory that Green Bay linemen are allowed to hold on every play will be put to the test next year. Guaranteed he'll get, get called for some ridiculous holding call that'll take a touchdown off the board late for the Lions next year. Sure, that'll happen. Anyway, I digress. So the Lions, Riley Reef, who is average at best, average at best left tackle, I thought actually played worse at right tackle last year for the Lions, went to the Vikings to go back and play left tackle for about $11 million a year. Rick Wagner is making nine, which is a lot for a right tackle, except it's not like the old days. Teams don't just automatically put their best pass rusher up against the team's left tackle anymore. Look at Von Miller. He oftentimes, if not exclusively, rushes against the other team's right tackle. Plus, because the Lions are paying a rookie, they have a rookie left guard, a rookie left tackle, and a third-year guy, third-round pick at center, those guys aren't making a ton of money. So you can afford to invest money in right tackle and right guard. So they're paying less collectively to those two guys than they would have paid to what Larry Warford and Riley Reef got from other teams. That's what the market bear. That's what the Lions would have had to pay those guys to get them instead. They're not taking hometown discounts. So master stroke by Bob Quinn. And we talked about DJ Hayden. Look, we'll see. They're taking a flyer on the guy. I certainly hope that it doesn't preclude them from drafting at least one defensive back in this draft since it's an extremely deep draft for D-backs. And you can't ever have enough good guys that can cover in the NFL. Can't. Can't have enough. Cannot have enough. I'd be shocked if the Lions don't take at least one, maybe two D-backs, a safety and a corner. And then they did a couple of backup D-linemen guys. Guys are in their mid to late 20s. Akeem Spence, Cornelius Washington. We'll see. You never know. Cornelius Washington's stats weren't great. He only had two sacks last year, but he had a lot of 20-something pressures. And he's really probably more suited to playing a 4-3 than the 3-4 that the Bears played. We'll see. Guy's a workout freak. His combine numbers were off the charts when he, when he came out in, I think, 13 from Georgia. He was a late-round pick because he didn't produce a lot in college, but just athletically off the charts. For a guy who's 6-4 for the Lions, is going to play about 275. I think he ran like 4-6 at the combine or something like that. You know, had all tested through the roof. But the production hasn't been there. But you never know. Maybe he's one of these guys where the light turns on. Right scheme, right coaches. You never know. Akeem Spence, same thing. You know, he was a third-round pick at Illinois for the Buccaneers. They thought he was going to be the guy to pair with Gerald McCoy. He's been okay, shown some flashes here and there. Most likely will be a backup for the Lions. And then these guys aren't getting big money. I mean, they're getting $2 million bucks a year on three-year deals, which, again, are really just like one-year deals. So I like what the Lions have done. A 
thought the Eagles did a nice job picking up Torrey Smith and Alshon Jeffrey, who we talked about before. They need wideouts in the worst way. Now you, you pair those two guys with Jordan Matthews. That should be a pretty good receiving core for the Eagles. The Niners signed a bunch of guys. You know, I who knows? I mean, they, they, the team needs a lot. Uh, Deshaun Jackson went to the Buccaneers. You'd think that'd be a nice match. Put him on the opposite side of Mike Evans. I mean, Deshaun Jackson is a one-trick pony, but he's a good one-trick. He's good at that one trick, which is he catches the deep ball. Now, I wouldn't have given a 30-year-old receiver who's 170 pounds, who's always injured, the money that Tampa Bay gave him, and I guarantee you that contract's going to look terrible in two years. No, no way he plays the length of that contract in Tampa Bay. Not a chance. Not a chance. The interesting move was the Patriots signed Stephon Gilmore away from the Bills, gave him a big contract. It's usually not the Patriots' M.O. It's usually not their jam, as the kids would say. Uh, kept their own guy, Dante Hightower, today. Four-year, 40-something million dollar contract with, I think, 19 in guarantees. Somebody I thought the Lions might take a look at, given their huge need for linebackers. You know, I also think Dante Hightower is probably a little bit overrated. I think that scheme suits him well. And yes, I know he made the big play in the Super Bowl. Nobody blocked the guy. He came clean on a play that nobody blocked. And then, of course, everybody's like, oh, he made two of the biggest plays. He made that. He made the tackle on Marshawn Lynch right before the Malcolm Butler interception. Go back and watch it. Marshawn Lynch already had five yards. And by the skin of his chinny-chin, the hair on his chinny-chin-chin, he barely throws an arm out there and tackles Marshawn Lynch a half a yard shy of the goal line. Yes, did it turn out in hindsight to be a big play? Of course. But it wasn't as if it was the defining play where if you would have told me on the next play they hand the ball to Marshawn Lynch on fourth and goal from the one and Dante Hightower meets him in the hole and sticks him and keeps him out of the end zone to seal the win, okay, that's something. Don't give me he barely drags a guy down from behind by dumb luck almost and then the next play becomes the interception. Because the Seahawks made the dumbest play call in the history of the Super Bowl. Please. So anyway, Patriots kept him, traded for Dwayne Allen, tight end from the Colts, traded for Coney Ely, defensive end from the Panthers. So they've been active. And again, usually they don't give big money deals to other teams' free agents, let alone their own. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, Gilmore had a breakout year this year. For the Bills, I think, with five picks. But up until this year, he had not been great. So I assume the Patriots are banking on the fact that... Oh, and their other big trade is they traded for Brandon Cooks, who you know is just going to kill it for them. I mean, he killed it for the Saints. Why wouldn't he kill it with Brady? I mean, you know, the guy's fast as a hiccup. So... Uh, it's just they, they've made a lot of they've taken a lot of big names, which is not usually their jam. It's not usually the Patriots MO. These guys are all big names, you know, not all of them, but Cooks is a big name, Gilmore a big name, kept their own guy, Hightower. You know, Dwayne Allen, talented player, always hurt. And Coney Ealy showed some flashes. He had had a big game in the Super Bowl a couple of years ago, didn't have a great year for the Panthers this year. So we'll see. Brown's giving insane amounts of money to Kevin Zeitler, the guard from the Bengals. Dumb. 
giving Joel Bettino, their own guy, a ton of money. Dumb. And the Browns are a mess. What a mess that team is. So, again, free agency, you make one or two smart moves. If there's a guy in his prime, 25, 26, 27, that fills a glaring need on your team, and you think you're a team that, that's going to get you that much closer or put you over the edge, you do it. But spending money for the sake of spending money is just dumb. And, you know, the Browns have the most cap room of anybody, so they're spending like drunken sailors. So are the 49ers. I don't think any of these moves are making these teams any good, any better. Again, you both need quarter. Get a quarterback. And I understand they're probably both thinking they're going to get one in the draft, maybe, and trying to build. And at least the Browns are doing the right thing, trying to build that offensive line. That's a start. But I'm not that impressed. All right, moving on. little March Madness time. So we've got these playing games. So to me, it really starts tomorrow night, Thursday night. But now they've done this, this new play-in thing where, like, for instance, last night, Mount St. Mary's, who was a 16 seed. By the way, shout-out to Johnny B, KG, the boys at the Mount, my buddies, Mount St. Mary's alumni, Congrats! They beat New Orleans last night for, the, for the, the, the the honor, if you will, of going to play Villanova uh, on Thursday. But it was actually a highly entertaining game. Mount St. Mary's has this really fun player to watch, Junior Robinson, who's 5'5", supposedly can dunk. Uh, he had 20-something points last night, made a bunch of big baskets for them late. It was actually a highly entertaining game. They ended up winning by one, 67-66. But really, my eyes will be tuned to the Terps. They play Xavier. They got a six seed, which I thought was generous, frankly, considering they were four and six in the last ten games. But it looked like this year the committee really focused on road wins, which Maryland, I believe, is eleven and two on the road, seven and two in the conference. So they put a lot of stock in that. I mean, Syracuse beat some really good teams like Duke. But they were awful away from the Carrier Dome this year. They didn't get in. They didn't deserve to get in. I mean, I understand that they had some good wins. You play the ACC. It just means you had a lot of opportunities. Their non-conference schedule was laughable. And they didn't beat anybody on the road. They didn't get screwed. Illinois State maybe got screwed. They went 27-6. and six And lost to Wichita State, who made the tournament. Whereas a team like, you know... Either Wake Forest or Kansas State. Now, Kansas State was 8-10 and 10 in the conference in the Big 12. Team Maryland beat, by the way. They beat Wake Forest last night in the playing game. So, who knows? I mean, I think it's tough. It's tough to pick these these last, however, four in or whatever it is. But, I mean, I, you know, look, to me, the teams you want to watch, Villanova, UCLA... North Carolina, Kansas, Duke, because I'll be rooting for them to lose. But they come in super hot now after sort of a, a mid to late season swoon a little bit, a little bit of a hiccup for them. I, mean, I think they had eight losses, which for Duke's a lot. But I watched that Duke-North Carolina game, the ACC uh, semifinal game, 
I mean, Duke's good. The kid, Luke Kennard, can play. And then, what's the kid I'm forgetting? The freshman is really good. Small forward. And then Grayson Allen, he's a punk. But he's good. He's streaky, but he's good. So, you know, listen, I don't really get into the brackets anymore that much. I'll probably do one. You know, in the old days, I used to do like five. I'll probably do one just just because. And I'll watch it. I mean, I'll be watching this stuff, sure. But I'm really just focused on Maryland. Love to see them win a game. If they win a game, I'll be happy. You know, they started three freshmen this year. Mello Trimble, their junior, you know, all-star, if you will, all-conference guard, um, who's a good player. Not great, good, and makes some clutch shots here and there. If I had to compare him to an NBA player, it'd be like Dennis Johnson. Guy would be shooting, you know, shoot three for 12, but then in the last 30 seconds uh, of the game makes a huge shot. That's kind of Mello Trimble. Now, what's a little distressing to me about him is you know, he came back after a sophomore year. He had a, he had a breakout freshman year. He was a stud. First team all Big Ten. His so-so year last year. Tested the waters of the NBA. The NBA told him, you're not even going to get drafted. So he came back to Maryland this year. You know, I haven't seen a ton of improvement in his game, particularly in his outside shooting. Which, you know, if I were him, I mean, he's a 6'3 guard. How are you not... I mean, maybe he is, and maybe he's just not capable. I don't know. But I would think he'd be shooting a 1,000 sh- jump shots a day during the summer, try to get better for the season. And some of this is selfish, but I, I think, again, at best he's going to be a second-round pick. He should come back. He should go back to Maryland for his senior year. And, again, work on his jumper all summer long. And if he does that, I mean, he's like a 30-something percent, high 30s maybe percent three-point shooter. In college, I mean, that number needs to be 40, 40 plus for him to get drafted, I think. Now, look, he, he's got a good feel for the game. He's not the quickest guy, but he gets past guys because he knows how to play with, with tempo. And he stops and starts. And, I mean, he's, he's savvy. He's skilled. No question. And he's got, a, you know, he's got an NBA body, but he's not the fastest guy in the world. He's not the quickest guy in the world. But if he could develop a, a, a reliable jump shot, I think he'd be an excellent third guard in the NBA, kind of a tweener, kind of a two guard, a little bit of a point guard. So we'll see. And then finally, just real quick, we talked about Russell Westbrook earlier uh, on, an, on an earlier show. So last night, and again, I guess it was against the, the Brooklyn Nets, who are a, a complete embarrassment. I think they have 12 wins. But they're doing it on purpose. I mean, they're trying to build something, unlike that joke uh, across the river, the Knicks, who have no idea what the hell they're doing. But in any event, uh, Oklahoma City played the Nets in Brooklyn last night. I watched some of that game on TV. Westbrook had eight assists in the first quarter, finished with 19 for the game, along with, I think it was 27 points and 12 rebounds. 33rd triple-double of the year. Now, you might say, well, you know, big deal, what Russell Westbrook is putting up all these numbers. That, yeah. 33 double-doubles. Oklahoma City's 27-6 and six in those games. 27-6. and six. It's 21 games over 500. 
I think they have 39 wins, or maybe now it's 40. We'll go go to the Google later and see. My point is, they need those triple doubles for that team to be good and for that team to win. These are not just superfluous window dressing, stat padding numbers that he's putting up. They're legit. So, you know, I don't want to hear it. And then if somebody came out and said, oh, you shouldn't even be a Mark Cuban or somebody, you shouldn't even be considered for MVP. What? I'm not saying you have to give the guy the MVP, but shouldn't be considered what he out of your mind? All right, they're 38 and 29. Currently sixth seed in the, in the Western Conference. So that means on games when he doesn't have a triple-double, if they're 27 and 6, that means they're 11 and 23 in the other games when he doesn't have a triple-double. You think the, think it means something? Think he means a little something to that team? And look, they've gotten a little bit better since the trade deadline. Taj Gibson was a nice pickup. Solid NBA pro forward from the Bulls. They got Ennis Cantor back. Who basically, I mean, that guy just basically is a double-double in 20, 25 minutes off the bench every night for them. Scoring machine, center. Victor Oladipo's a talented player, inconsistent, but talented. I mean, I'm not saying it's all him. They've got some decent players on that team. But, I mean, come on. Let's be real. The guy's tremendous. Plus a 25-9 and at home. I just, as I said, I I will watch that guy. If if I'm home and he's on TV, I'm watching. Maybe not the whole game, but I'm watching. And then, of course... Ever since I, I so brilliantly stated that the NBA is a competitive balance problem because it's basically going to be uh, Golden State and Cleveland in the finals. Now, of course, both teams have come back down to earth. Now, part of that is because they both had injuries to key positions, key players. Kevin Durant for Golden State, Kevin Love for Cleveland. And Cleveland's made some pickups recently. They got Derek Williams, who had one good year for the Knicks. It's a good bench player. Deron Williams, former star. Now, not so much, but at least a decent backup. They had gotten Kyle Korver. They got Amon Shumpert and J.R. Smith back from, from injury now. Cleveland's going to be just fine. And they should get Love back in time for the playoffs. But, I mean, they're only three games up on the Celtics now for the best record in the Eastern Conference. And Golden State is tied with San Antonio for the best record in the Western Conference. So they might they seem a lot more vulnerable now than they did whenever I said that. Was it two, three weeks ago? Boy, I mean, I am the mush, aren't I? And my Wizards, 41-25. and 25, Three games behind for the best spot in the Eastern Conference. Playing great. And Boyan Bogdanovich, who they picked up from the Nets, has been a, a godsend for them. He's had some monster games for them off the bench. 25 points, 27 points. And really saved their bacon in a couple of games where against bad teams that they should have lost. And they've managed to pull out late. Telling you, watch out for my Wizards. That starting five is as good as any in the NBA. And now they got Bobo and Brandon Jennings. They picked up after the Knicks uh, cut him. I mean, he's not a star. And they got Ubre Jr. and Ian Mahimi. I mean, that's not a terrible second unit. I mean, at least they're getting something out of the second unit now. Before they were getting nothing. All right, that's going to wrap it up for another edition of Jamal About Sports. Enjoy the March Madness, and we'll be back next week to break it all down. Until then, peace out.